At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. There was a wonderful story about, I think, President Eisenhower, uh, when the computer was first being built. You remember that story? Eisenhower uh, went into a room full of computers, and um, he puts a question to the these machines, is there a God? And they all start up and there's all those lights flashing and wheels turning and things like that. And after about 10 minutes of that kind of thing, a voice comes forth and the voice says, now there is. <laughs> well, I um, bought this wonderful machine, IBM machine, and it's, it's there. And I'm rather an authority on God, so I identified the God, and it seems to me an Old Testament God with a lot of rules and no mercy. <laughs> Damn, Papa Joe. How do you keep nailing it? It's happening right now. The people have bowed and prayed to the neon God they made. AI, robotics, transhumanism. Important topics that our astral guests will deal with in this eternal now. Critical topics, actually, and very ignored right now. While meat sacks have been waving virus statistics on Twitter, fighting on the streets in that divide-and-conquer psyop, spending life essence on a sham election cycle, the technocrats have gotten richer and pushed ahead their agendas. Leroy Jenkins. Humans, for the most part, don't have a clue. They don't want one or need one either. They're happy. They think they have a good bead on things. But why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. The person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. And the neon god laughs, and he's no different than Jehovah. Pandora, that ancient killer android, has returned. And I wish I were being metaphoric. As John Bruner wrote in his short story, Judas, we've been slaves to our tools since the first caveman made the first knife to help him get his supper. After that, there was no going back and we built till our machines were 10 millions more powerful than ourselves. We gave ourselves cars when we might have learned to run. We made airplanes when we might have grown wings. And then the inevitable, we made a machine our god. First time anybody made a tool, I mean, taking a, a stone and chipping it so that you can handle it, that's the beginning of a machine. It's turning out of nature into your service. But then there comes a time when uh, it, it, it begins to dictate to you. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. But you have arrived at the virtual Alexandria, that state of mind where East meets West. Because you're not hypnotized by the digital pipe piping of the Archons. You were made for this age of Hermes. You eat nervous breakdowns for breakfast. 
Madness is your lover and creativity is your orgasm. Never belonging but thriving because so many today know they don't belong, have been displaced forever, and don't know what to do as the world ends in 2020. As Nietzsche wrote, The higher we soar, the smaller we appear to those who cannot fly. You know, they say that dreams are real only as long as they last. Couldn't say the same thing about life. Your life is yours to create. You were made for this age of Hermes. This may not be the best time to be alive, but it's the best time to be awake. And infinity hasn't gone anywhere. It's there for your taking, your experiencing. You no longer are lulled by all these distractions and the promises of machine gods and machine men. And you make your pain and weirdness work for you now. Don't be the change you want to see in the world, as Gandhi said, but be the strange you want to see in the world. And as Hunter S. Thompson wrote, When the going gets weird, the weird turn professional. There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. So welcome to Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. Welcome to that dream of you, that distant ship smoke on the horizon. Welcome to finally reaching your potential. We don't take prisoners, but liberate them. We are not the final authority on anything, but hope to be an endless possibility for everything, including you finding the mystery that works for you and only you, frees you forever from the neon god the meat sacks made and its plan for singularity, frees you from the lunacy of nipples for men and belief in heroes or villains. My father says that almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. He says that only a few people are awake and they live in a state of constant, total amazement. For these issues and so many other topics, we are once again honored to have my friend and a brilliant scholar, Jason Reza Giorgiani, here at the Virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, Prometheism. You know, with Jason, the Gnosis will be on asteroid steroids, and he'll provide a bukkake of insight on both expanding your inner world and dealing with the outer world. Plus, you just can't go wrong with Prometheus, that primordial Gnostic god, that ultimate trickster archetypal image, and that aspect of Hermes we need more than ever. You can't go wrong. The fire that danced at the end of that match was a gift from the titan Prometheus, a gift that he stole from the gods who were terrified of what we might do with it were it to fall into our hairy little paws. Can we create a utopia as Jason contends? And I've heard Gordon talk about this as well. I mean, the world belongs to the outer church of Grant Morrison, right? As Neil Gaiman said, it's not about making a better world, but making a more interesting world. 
that vibe of being the strange you want to see in the world. We're all going to end up like Prometheus on the rock once we wake up, our livers devoured by Pandora. But the fire we steal will ultimately bring the destruction of Olympus as related in the myth. Guess what I'm trying to say is me quoting Gordon quoting Ursula Le Guin. How you play is what you win. It's an honor to die at your side. It's an honor to have lived at yours. But I do know we must embrace the old gods and reject these new American gods. Machine gods. That neon god the meat sacks made. As I've mentioned, once the pandemic hit, I committed to spending about six hours a day outside. And you know my views on Gaia and her slaughterhouse vulva. Mother Nature is a serial killer. But it is my way of rebelling like Prometheus, defying the new American gods that want us on lockdown and embedded in those altars of data mining, soul numbing, empathy killing technology. Don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. I spend all this time outside to reconnect with older gods and call out to the trapped divinity in every plant and animal and rock. Find that lost song of Orpheus. I got weirder, stranger, and found new, kinder dimensions of myself. I changed, and I hope you execute your own small Prometheus rebellion. Locate that fire that works for you. All because he gave us fire. We are the gods now. We wield incredible power. The power to transform, to destroy, and to create again. The question, of course, before us is what the hell are we supposed to do with this power? And it is strange my wife complains that she sees hummingbirds and squirrels approach me solely outdoors since I've become basically part of the outdoor world. Me, the surly Sethian dualist. But that's what we do in the age of Hermes. We trick the gods. We trick everyone around us, and we trick our own egos. We alchemically transform by being weird and soaring so high nobody understands us. As Ursula Le Guin also wrote, You cannot buy the revolution. You cannot make the revolution. You can only be the revolution. It is in your spirit, or it is nowhere. Every revolution begins with one small act of courage. Heck and heckity. In the Truman Show, Truman couldn't defeat Kristoff by fighting the Empire, but only won once he started playing tricks on his creator. The whole world revolves around me. It's all that I've said, or the Neon God, the Machine God, swallows us. Don't you see what's happening right now? The goal was never to have robots take our jobs, but turn us into robots. 
devour our innocence, imagination, and anything that connects us to our ancestors and divine heritage. And they are winning. So say I put my brain in a robot body and there's a war. Robots versus humans. What side am I on? Humans? You have a human brain. This reminds me of an account, and it's probably apocryphal. Administrators came to Churchill during the war and said it was necessary to cut the budget on museums and the arts. Churchill responded, Then what are we fighting for? The point is that when humans are cut off from what is beautiful and meaningful and inspirational, the fire of the gods, when we can't come together to create protective egregores, then we're doomed. I think they're looking for something worth dying for because it's easier than finding something worth living for. So trick something. Go to nature or sneak into a museum or make contact with those that need help. Be Prometheus and defy Olympus. Find that fire that is yours by birthright. Be the revolution. Create new personal egregores or find the old ones. Don't let them turn you into machine and then they'll say to you, What did you dream? It's alright we told you what to dream. Welcome my son to the machine. Oh, you shouldn't even exist. I mean, we took out Cyberdyne over 10 years ago, but we stopped Judgment Day. You only postponed it. Judgment Day is inevitable. Led us to our interview with Jason Reza Giorgiani, where you will find many insights on finding the mystery that works for you and only you. Navigate the incoming singularity and the jihad of the technocrats and the neon god the meat sacks made. The Empire never ended. So, you produce a neo-human, okay, with a new individuality and new consciousness but that's on the beginning of the evolutionary cycle because as the next cycle proceeds the input is now this new intelligence as intelligence piles on intelligence as ability piles on ability the speed changes until what until you reach a crescendo in a way could be imagined as an almost instantaneous fulfillment of human human and neo-human potential it could be something totally different it could be the amplification of the individual the multiplication of individual existences parallel existences now with the individual no longer restricted by time and space the manifestations of this neo-human type evolution manifestation could be dramatically counterintuitive that's the interesting part the old evolution is cold it's sterile it's efficient okay and its manifestations are those social adaptation you're talking about parasitism dominance morality okay uh, war predation these would be subject to de-emphasis these would be subject to de-evolution the new evolutionary paradigm would give us the human traits of truth, of loyalty, of justice, of freedom. These would be manifestations of the new evolution. And that is what we would hope to see from this. That would be nice. This is the Aeon Byte interview. And with us, it's always a pleasure and an honor to have Jason Reza Giorgiani. 
this time to discuss his new work, The Prometheus Manifesto. Jason, thank you very much for coming on AM Byte in the virtual Alexandria. Thank you, Miguel. It's great to be back with you again. Always great to have you. And it's always great to have the Moondog Vance. How are you doing, Vance? I'm looking forward to this wonderful interview. It should be very enlightening. No, oh, it always is when Jason is yeah. around. Always great, uh, intriguing, engaging, and often game-changing ideas. So before we get into your new work, and this definitely ties into it, a couple of questions that might seem to be side questions. But Jason, uh, I'd like to ask you, what do you think of 2020 so far as a historian and a philosopher or even someone who uh, studies uh, parapsychology? Well, I'll stick my neck out and say that I think it will be remembered as one of the most significant turning points, uh, certainly in modern history. Um, you know, when we think in terms of single years, like, oh, uh, I don't know, 1914, uh, 1939, perhaps, the beginning of the Second World War, 1968, uh, 2020 will certainly be remembered uh, as a year at least as significant as those, if not uh, of far greater significance. But you would say it's not unprecedented, do you? I mean, this seems no, to be, there's a, there's a rhyme, as Mark Twain said. Yes, yes. But it, it is a, as far as one single year is concerned, it's going to be looked back on as a major turning point uh, in a number of ways, and, and especially sociopolitically. Yeah, you even write in the Prometheus Manifesto, it is no coincidence that this pandemic has taken place in the same decade as a revolution in robotics, nanotechnological 3D printing, and the development of viable drone delivery technology. But what's interesting, too, is you also say that uh, cities will not be repopulated and reclaimed. Why do you think uh, they would drive us out of cities? I thought the idea was to put us into cities. <laughs> keep all the resources. Yeah, I'm very concerned, Miguel, that, um, well, first of all, uh, some of the people who follow my work may be aware of this. I, I wrote a brief blog piece on uh, the coronavirus back in uh, the late spring of 2020. And uh, I uh, am not at all convinced that this is a, a naturally uh, arising virus. Uh, and I suspect that it's being used for the sake of, uh, you know, economic and, and sociopolitical engineering. My concern is that the coronavirus, uh, this COVID-19, is the first of a series of measures that will be taken in order to slow, stop, and ultimately reverse uh, the advancement of industrial technology. And that this will be done uh, by a group of people who are concerned about the profoundly de destabilizing effect that uh, singularity-level technologies could have. So, I mean, in our course of our discussion, we'll get into the whole idea of the technological singularity and how various uh, trajectories of technological development like genetic engineering, nanotech, uh, artificial intelligence are converging uh, into, a, into a kind of, well, they're... they're rate of development is accelerating exponentially. And if you were to graph that, it would be the moment when an exponentially uh, rising curve turns into a spike. 
And uh, by most estimates, this is only 30 years away. So uh, I think it's possible that a certain elite, particularly based in uh, the, at this point, transnational military industrial intelligence complex, has begun to take steps to slow our advance toward this technological singularity and may potentially undertake other measures to actually uh, bring about a controlled demolition of advanced industrial civilization. And that's why I'm concerned that the uh, really uh, significant impact on metropolitan life that this uh, virus has had um, will, will, will not be something that's uh, transitory and that uh, we, we may see a permanent movement away from urban centers um, as a result of other crises that are going to emerge. I mean, look, it's not just the coronavirus that's affected life in urban areas. We also have these uh, riots and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the increasing uh, eruption of violent social chaos, which I think will only get worse after the November election. So I, I envision a, a long-term um, migration from out of urban areas and into uh, a kind of neo-agrarian uh, homestead uh, restructuring of civilization. And, and I'm actually very concerned about that because it would isolate people and make them more vulnerable, actually. Ironically, it would make them more vulnerable to centralized control because it reduces the uh, opportunities for political organization and uh, protest in a positive sense. Very interesting, and we definitely want to unpack some of your ideas as they are relevant to your book. But uh, another side question, and this is one of those I had for a while. It's one of those, God, I wonder what Jason thinks of this. But uh, I don't know if you can speak to this, but have you heard about Fomenko and the new chronology, Tartary, and all this uh, quote-unquote new scholarship? And I'm only asking you because you, you're a scholar of a Persian Persian history, ancient Persian history. And there's some things on the internet saying that Genghis Khan was a Scythian and he had red hair and blue eyes and all this other stuff. Have you heard of any of this or, and if you have, what are your views? Frankly, I have not. Uh, I have not heard any of that. Uh, That would be uh, remarkable if there were empirical evidence that uh, Genghis Khan were a Scythian. I, I would be very skeptical of that. But, uh, you know, I'm interested to look into it. Certainly send me some information about it. Sure, sure. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting. But as far as you can tell, none of the Persian historians or anything ever said anything about uh, Genghis Khan being fair. I mean, he was from Mongolia. He was Asian. Yeah, and, you know, it's you know when you're from Iran, you know very clearly that there was a major demographic impact of the Mongols on Iran. You can see it in the population phenotypically. So, uh, you know, it would, if, if something like that were true, it would mean that there was one leader, namely Genghis Khan himself, who was of Scythian stock, but he was leading a, a society of Mongol hordes who proceeded to invade Iran. Um, clearly the, the bulk of the people who, uh, invaded and, and conquered Iran in the 1200s were, uh, you know, of Asian ethnicity and they left a, a deep uh, demographic impact on the country. 
Well, wonderful. Yeah, I'll send you some information because that's this has been spreading on the internet, and I'm especially saying that Tartary was really this great empire that got hidden. And I'm not convinced. I'm just asking around to historians and honest historians that are out there. But we shall find out. So I guess the the question, Jason, would be directly: What is the Prometheus Manifesto, and what? Jumped out on me as you say very plainly, this is a declaration of war. Yeah, so the Prometheus Manifesto, which is available at Prometheism.com, is a distillation uh, from out of my most recent book, which uh, will be released by the time that this program airs. And um, the Prometheus Manifesto basically returns to the philosophical trajectory of Prometheus and Atlas, uh, but with more of an emphasis on technological developments of the kind that I treated in World State of Emergency. So in a way, it's a hybrid of, of the project of Prometheus and Atlas and uh, World State of Emergency. And it begins by looking at some of the you know attributes of Prometheus uh, and what makes the myth of Prometheus unique, and then goes into... Um, an examination of what uh, people in the tech community call the technological singularity in terms of three different facets or, you know, three uh, major aspects, the end of humanity, the end of history, and the end of reality. And uh, after going through, you know, exploring these different dimensions of the technological singularity, um, it lays out a... a uh, new vision for what I referred to as the spectral revolution in Prometheus and Atlas and uh, proposes that in order to uh, navigate this unprecedented crisis that is the technological singularity in order to, uh, you know, come out the other side of this alchemical crucible uh, stronger and empowered rather than, uh, you know, winding up in some kind of a uh, inhuman condition and, uh, you know, seeing our, our humanity degraded by these potentially threatening technological developments, we have to restructure society uh, in accordance with the Promethean archetype, that we really need to, to develop a, uh, what I call a Prometheist society uh, that's capable of integrating these radical technological developments in a positive way. So you would say that singularity, all that tech is inevitable. We can't be Luddites about it. It's uh, how are we going to approach it and accept it and deal with it? Well, no, actually, you know, another aspect of the manifesto that I uh, neglected to to mention, and, and this, you know, is something that I'm sure I'll be severely criticized for, uh, if not, you know, derided on account of, uh, for being a conspiracy theorist. But one of the other major elements of the manifesto is this idea of a breakaway civilization. Uh, the idea that th there have been developments within the military industrial intelligence complex over the course of decades that have effectively led to a relatively autonomous uh, economic and industrial base and a, a radically divergent culture from the known cultures of Earth, a sort of culture of the Black Project's world, and that the people in this breakaway civilization may very well decide to... Uh, slow, stop, and then reverse the convergent technological advancements that are leading us to the singularity, as I suggested at the outset of our conversation. Right. 
I think it's a, you know, it's a very real prospect that Luddite type discourses, such as the discourse of deep ecology uh, and various other romanticist naturalist uh, narratives are going to be appropriated in a very cynical way by the military industrial complex. Um, uh, and that in the context of certain engineered catastrophes, they're going to use this discourse to uh, take us back to a, a kind of neo-feudal agrarian society uh, where we are far removed from the kind of uh, urgent prospect of the technological singularity that we're facing now. And by breakaway civilization, you're talking about like uh, uh, Richard Dolan, breakaway, the elite having their own playthings and spaces to do whatever they want? Yes, although, um, to be honest, I think that, you know, uh, Dolan deserves a lot of credit for coining that concept, uh, but it's been developed in a, in a much more rigorous uh, way by Joseph Farrell. Um, and, you know, Farrell in particular traces the genealogy of this breakaway civilization to uh, fascist black projects. And he uh, makes, I think, a very convincing case that both Operation Paperclip uh, the, the import of thousands of uh, Nazi German scientists into the United States after 1945, between 45 and 47. And also, what's less known, the constitution of the national security state in America around 1947 involved a an integration of uh, very high-level scientific and um, technocratic uh, elements of the Third Reich, and that these people have effectively been working from within the United States military-industrial complex to plan a Fourth Reich, and that for a very long time, you know, throughout the, the second half of the 20th century, they uh, had a convenient relationship with the American political establishment insofar as they were able to use American state power to dismantle their principal enemy, the Soviet Union. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, this uh, military-industrial deep state turned on uh, America. And that, you know, at this point, we are seeing a kind of um, transformation, radical transformation of America sociopolitically that uh, may, may lead to a... Uh, neo-feudal fascist system of some sort. So uh, to make a long story short, I think that Joseph Farrell has taken Dolan's concept of the breakaway civilization and uh, developed it in, in a much more sophisticated way that also leads to uh, very disturbing conclusions about the fascist character of this breakaway civilization. And when I say fascist, it's important to draw an important distinction. And that's the distinction between the futuristic elements in fascism uh, and the traditionalist elements. You know, if you go back to the 1920s and 30s, as uh, the regime of Benito Mussolini in Italy was rising to power and as National Socialism cohered in Germany, you see two very different types of political ideology that are in a significant dialectical tension with one another. And one of them is... Uh, 
futurist. It's uh, very much in favor of uh, technological advancement and radical transformation of the human condition. And the other, and this is of course uh, epitomized by F.T. Marinetti in uh, in the Italian futurist movement. Marinetti, who was a close collaborator of Benito Mussolini in the 1920s. And then you see a traditionalist strain, which has reemerged recently uh, in the in the European right, and was popular among the alt right uh, during the brief period when the alt right was a you know significant phenomenon in the last few years. And uh, this this traditionalist streak, uh, which which uh, basically believes in a cyclical conception of history, and that we're in the Kali Yuga, we're in the the last and darkest of the, the uh, uh, world ages before the cycle completes and begins again with a, a new golden age. This kind of worldview would be really conducive to a uh, dramatic deindustrialization of the planet um, on the part of these uh, cynical uh, military industrial elites who might want to um, uh, who might want to stop us from reaching the technological singularity, uh, if for no other reason than to maintain a monopoly over the control of these technologies and to avoid the kind of social destabilization that would threaten their uh, control. As Philip K. Dick famously said or prophesied, the Germans lost the war, but the Nazis won it. And you're saying the breakaway civilization is basically embedded in the upper echelons of the military, the rich families and all that. People might start wondering, where do I find these cats? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's important to, uh, remember that it's not just the military industrial complex, it's the military industrial intelligence corporate complex. And so we're talking about, you know, large corporations, that have a close relationship with uh, the military and are and are running black projects uh, that have significance to national security. And at this point, that's not just you know Lockheed Martin and uh, you know Boeing and uh, you know Grumman and these kinds of large defense contractors. It's also Google, uh, which which is frankly indistinguishable from the CIA. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's large. You know. Large elements of the financial system as well. If you look carefully into the events of 9-11, Deutsche Bank plays a very disturbing role in all of that. And Deutsche Bank also plays a, a very uh, nefarious role in determining the immigration policies under Angela Merkel, which led to this social catastrophe in Germany. Uh, you know, this... this um, opening of the doors of Germany to masses of migrants from Syria uh, has led to a, a fascist backlash in, in, amidst the German population. I think that this is being censored to a great extent in mainstream media, but over the coming years, you're going to see what kind of a virulent uh, right-wing backlash uh, was catalyzed by these immigration policies, and they have the fingerprints of Deutsche Bank all over them. So, and then, you know, you look at, you know, who was handling money for uh, the uh, repatriated Nazis who moved to places like Argentina uh, after 1945, and you find some of these same financial institutions involved there. Oh, Lord. 
Vance, uh, I know you work for the deep state. So when you leave to your utopia, you still have to come on AM Biden and help out. <laughs> I'm nothing in the, in that world. I, I know nothing. I see nothing, <laughs> but, but I'll tell you though, the one thing that I have learned, uh, through my years, even before I worked for the deep state is that, um, you know, for many years, the military has always run scenarios and simulations to see, you know, how things would come out if this war started out, if this country acted up and so forth. Well, at this point, if you connect that with artificial intelligence and you have to assume that artificial intelligence has developed far beyond what's publicly uh, disclosed, there's probably an artificial intelligence already running the world economy, the world military strategy, and so forth and so on. So even though I have zero, and I want to emphasize this, zero knowledge of any of this, I have um, deduced just from the existence of black projects and what I see in the public domain, uh, knowing that the black projects have so, you know, 10 or 20 years beyond where we are right now in some cases, I can see that, um, you know, my theory is we're already under the thumb of AI of some sort, and it's not being run by Congress or any other public institution. So who else, right? The intelligence community is a big part of it. I think I agree with Jason on that. Well, this is definitely yeah, sober information and reminds me of uh, uh, Westworld Season 3 and the show Devs. Uh, again, it's already happened. These Google... Nazi types are making it. So it seems the way to fight this is to summon a tap into that ancient Gnostic God and that primordial Gnostic uh, fable or myth of Prometheus. And so what would a Prometheus be, Jason? I know you talk about there are certain aspects to a Prometheus. So tell us what a Prometheus is. Well, let me go through... uh what I consider some of the defining characteristics of the Prometheus archetype. Um, and then uh, we can make it clear why I think that uh, it's, it's these characteristics that will empower us to resist um, the potential totalitarianism that's looming on the horizon. And Jason, just real quick, and, and my apologies, but did you decide to write this with everything that happened in 2020 as a reaction, or is this something you'd already planned since before? I would say it's a hybrid of the two. Uh, okay. I had been already engaged in a book project, which involved a lot of these ideas, but it did crystallize after the beginning of the coronavirus. It, it crystallized into this uh, form of Prometheism after the onset of the coronavirus, which the significance of which was immediately apparent to me. So I, I took that as an indication that really there wasn't very much time left and that if some resistance is going to be organized, it, it has to begin now. So tell us about Prometheus, and then after we can start getting into the the god Prometheus himself. Right. So, you know, the first of the, uh, let's say, if let's say we could divide it into, I don't know, uh, about seven different characteristics, primary characteristics, I think, of the archetype of Prometheus. Just briefly going through what those are, let me start with uh, Prometheus as the creator. You know, in Greek mythology, and we've discussed this before, it's 
Prometheus and not Zeus, who is the creator of man. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Prometheus is, is the uh, genetic engineer of humanity. But, um, you know, Prometheus also is often associated rightly, I think, with creative genius. So one of the, the chief attributes of Prometheus is this idea of creative genius and uh, that he is our creator in whose image we're made. And so he also represents the creative power of humanity. Prometheus isn't just a creator. He's also an enlightener. So Prometheus is, is one of those uh, figures in, uh, you know, uh, theology that plays the role of a civilizer god. You see this in some other cultures in terms of, let's say, Quetzalcoatl uh, among the, uh, the ancient Mexican pantheon or uh, Enki in ancient Mesopotamia. Um, Prometheus is this civilizer god who brings knowledge to mankind and uh, particularly is credited with uh, giving the gift of the, the arts and the sciences to humanity. Uh, in this way, also controversially, Prometheus is akin to the rebel angels uh, in the, the uh, book of Genesis, and then uh, the account of, uh, of their, you know, their fall from heaven is elaborated on a greater length in the book of Enoch. Prometheus is very much akin to these uh, angels who come down and, and you know, uh, mate with mortal women and teach them the secrets of heaven, give them knowledge of the various arts and the sciences. So Prometheus is also an enlightener. And then, you know, uh, there are other aspects to Prometheus that are, that are in a way darker and more, uh, they, they express sort of the shadow side of this archetype, but it's a shadow that I think also needs to be drawn on uh, to gain the strength for the type of resistance that will be necessary. So here we go into the idea of Prometheus as uh, a trickster. Prometheus is, is the god of machination. You know, the, the Greek word mechane is the root both for um, machination in the sense of conspiring and contriving, uh, and it's also the root for the mechanical. So insofar as Prometheus is the god of technology, he's also sort of the god of contrivances and, and uh, you know, machinations and uh, uh, artifice. And he uses cunning and deception in order to steal fire from Olympus to bring the, the light of science and the fire of the forge to humanity from Olympus. And he also uses cunning uh, in order to... Um, in order to deceive Zeus when he sets up the prototype of sacrifices. So uh, Prometheus basically outwits Zeus by proposing a form of sacrifice where the gods get, you know, the, the uh, worst elements of, uh, you know, the, uh, of sacrificed animals and all of the most nutritious and nourishing um, parts of the cattle and, and other sacrificed animals are kept for humanity. So he, he is a, uh, he's a trickster god. And related to his being a trickster god, there's Prometheus as the pirate or the thief. He's also the god of piracy in a sense, or the, the deity uh, of thievery, um, insofar as he steals, you know, fire from the gods. And uh, let me go back for a second just to, to the idea of Prometheus. Well, actually, no, I'll come, I'll come to this momentarily. Um, uh, so, He's, he's also associated with, with piracy. And 
you know, the ethos of pirates on the open sea, whether it's the Cilician pirates in the Mediterranean fighting the Roman Empire or whether it's uh, the pirates of the, the, the classic age of European colonialism, th- there's something uh, of that spirit to Prometheus as well. And, you know, this is closely related to another major element of, of the Promethean archetype, Prometheus the rebel. So Prometheus is like uh, the incurable rebel. He is just, uh, you know, he, he, he is a, an inveterate rebel. He rebels against his fellow Titans in order to empower Zeus, believing that Zeus is going to be a more beneficent god than Kronos or Saturn. And he quickly realizes that Zeus is at least as tyrannical uh, as the Titans were. And so he turns on, on Zeus and he, he uh, becomes a champion of humanity and leads humanity in a kind of rebellion against the archontic power of Olympus. So we have Prometheus as the rebel. And then we have, you know, the consequences of that rebellion. I think, you know, the last, um, well, uh, another uh, major aspect of the Promethean archetype is uh, Prometheus as a martyr, a Prometheus as a, as a god who is sacrificed. And in this way, uh, Prometheus prefigures Christ, although I think it's, it's wrong to formulate it that way. Uh, I would say more that the, the Christ myth, the myth of, of, uh, you know, the, the God who's sacrificed for the sake of humanity, uh, that we see at the core of Christianity is a reiteration of this element of the Prometheus archetype. So Prometheus is also, uh, the, the deity who has the forbearance and the, um, the forbearance and the, uh, sort of uh, transcendence of his own ego uh, to the point where he's willing to sacrifice himself for his children, namely humanity. And then finally, uh, there is, of course, the, that attribute of the Prometheus archetype, which is definitional. Uh, the, the, uh, the very name Prometheus means forethought or thinking ahead. So Prometheus is the god of uh, projection, the kind of projection that we see in mathematical science, but also uh, prediction and prophecy. Prometheus, in addition to being the god of technological science who gave humanity the uh, capability to plan ahead and make provision for the future using science and technology, Prometheus also uh, taught humanity divination and uh, various methods for using precognition and uh, for basically having a providential power to see the future and, and therefore to, to evade um, nightmarish futures and to, uh, to seek out more, uh, you know, utopian futures, to become the masters of our own destiny by seeing ahead. So those are, I think, um, seven uh, principal characteristics of the Promethean archetype that could empower us in a rebellion against those elements of the breakaway civilization that want to uh, carry out an engineered regression of our planetary society and submit us to a uh, traditionalist totalitarianism. Definitely a God I like, and we should all embrace. And I like in some myths, it's Athena that helps Prometheus go get the fire. So we have sort of this primordial logos and Sophia figures, very old, but, the question would be, Jason, as far as you know, some have said Prometheus is not Greek. He might be imported. But 
this myth thousands of years ago is very radical. Again, it's very Gnostic about how to rebel against the ruling powers and the gods. It, it doesn't even seem it would fit in the consciousness of these pre-Socratic men. Do you see it the same way? What a remarkable story came out so early in human history? Um, I, I'm not sure I would say that. Uh, I would say that, well, let me make a couple of points in response to that. Um, first, in terms of the pre-Socratic age, I would say that the, the emergence of Prometheus in the context of Greek tragedy uh, as the, the central tragic figure of Greek culture actually prefigures pre-Socratic philosophy. Prometheus heralds the age of pre-Socratic philosophy. If you look at it chronologically, I mean, the, the dramas of Prometheus attributed to Aeschylus are written round about the time that we see, you know, Heraclitus and Pythagoras as the first pre-Socratic philosophers. And that brings me to the second uh, point that you made there about whether Prometheus might be imported. I'm not sure whether Prometheus was imported into the Greek pantheon the way that, say, Dionysus was. Um, but what I can tell you is that the characteristics of Prometheus are in, in many ways identical to those of the Persian god Ahura Mazda. And uh, so, you know, the Prometheus myth rises in prominence in Greek culture at just the time that the Persian Empire invades Greece. And I don't think that that's coincidental at all. Although Prometheus is mentioned in Hesiod a couple of hundred years earlier, Hesiod is a is a uh, paternalistic, patriarchal, uh, traditionalist who has a very negative attitude toward Prometheus, and and the myth is not elaborated in great detail in you know uh, the works and days or theogony of of Hesiod. It really emerges uh, in the you know in a crystallized form in Aeschylus, and Aeschylus himself fought in the Persian Wars, and Aeschylus wrote a drama called The Persians where he, he gives a, a fairly sympathetic, uh, he delivers a fairly sympathetic portrayal of Xerxes and of the Persians. So I think that the, the uh, you know, manifestation of the Prometheus mythos in Greek culture has a lot to do with the impact of the Persian Empire on the Greeks. And, um, and, and that's also relevant to these... Uh, these, uh, let's say, they're not affinities. It's, I think it's more than that. Uh, these, you know, the, the resonance between Prometheus and, and Ahura Mazda, the chief attribute of Ahura Mazda, uh, whose name literally means the Titan of wisdom or the wise Titan. I mean, how, how much, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, this is a perfect description of Prometheus. Mazdai Ahura, as Zarathustra calls him in the Gathas, literally means the wise titan. And then his chief attribute, Sepantominu, means the progressive mentality or the forward-directed mind or the future-directed uh, consciousness. So again, it's very close to uh, Prometheus. And then the uh, principal symbol of Ahura Mazda is the ever-burning fire. I don't think these things are accidental at all. And then when you look at the mission um, that Zarathustra lays out for humanity, for, for the righteous person who aligns himself with Sepantominu, you see that Zarathustra is calling on us to be industrious, to use the, the arts and the crafts 
in order to transform our existence and to turn this world into a paradise. And he advocates that explicitly in the context of a struggle against a, uh, a demonic power that he calls Angiramenu, later uh, shortened to Ahriman. And this Angiramenu is the, the principle of constraint or constriction. It's the retarding uh, force at work in the cosmos. And so I see this as, as uh, basically the, the archetypal essence of Zeus and the Olympians who want to keep mankind ignorant uh, and enslaved um, uh, and, you know, bound to, to uh, perform drudgery and, and all kinds of meaningless labor and sacrifice, you know, to these gods on high. So I would say there's, there's striking affinities between the archetype of, of Prometheus and the attributes of uh, the Persian god Ahura Mazda. And that makes sense because in past shows, Jason's, we've talked and you've made a very good argument. Zoroaster was that first figure in history that shifted from obedience to the gods to the supremacy, the importance of the individual, right? So this vibe kind of went right into the Greeks. Absolutely. And, you know, in a way, I would say that Prometheus is the ultimate champion of human individuality. I would say so, too. And Vance, what do you think? Do you have any questions for Jason or comments? Yeah, um, one one small question, Jason. Is there any connection between Enki and uh, and Prometheus, uh, and Enki and the Persian equivalent? I suspect that there is, but this takes us into much more controversial territory, which, of course, this program is the perfect place to explore. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think this takes us back to the myth of Atlantis, which. I elaborated on at length and I really delved into that in Prometheus and Atlas or, you know, in Prometheus and Atlas, uh, I dealt with uh, one of Prometheus's two brothers at the Titan Atlas, uh, who in the myth, in the uh, version of the myths recounted by Plato and Timaeus and Critias is uh, depicted as the king of Atlantis. Atlantis literally means the realm of Atlas. And so I suspect that these myths of Enki and Elil in um, the, the, the conflict between Enki and Elil in uh, Sumerian culture, which was passed down to other Mesopotamian civilizations, and the myth of the conflict between um, Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca. Uh, Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent, the wisdom god, and uh, Tezcatlipoca, the smoking mirror, which I've always found to be a, a rather ominous name for this demonic figure in the Mayan culture. Uh, and then the conflict between Ahura Mazda and Ahriman. And finally, the conflict between Prometheus and, and Zeus. I think all of these are reiterations of some primordial memory of a revolt that took place in Atlantis. And I think that uh, when you look at Timaeus and Critias and the account that Plato gives of why the flood was brought. There's an interesting parallel there to the book of Genesis, right. where effectively you have uh, this explanation that the, the flood was brought by these archons, these, these uh, gods who control humanity from on high, it, because uh, humanity had become self-sufficient People weren't sacrificing to the gods anymore. They had developed very advanced technology. They were developing a planetary scale civilization. 
and were basically ready to storm heaven and go out into the cosmos on their own. And so in order to stop this and, and you know, uh, lower humanity, humble humanity, and, and, you know, reduce us back to a position of servitude, this great deluge is brought. And it's, it's also worthy of note that, you know, the Noah figure in um, Greek culture, Deucalion, is a son of Prometheus, and he helps to bring mm-hmm. civilization back to the earth after the great flood in a way similar to Quetzalcoatl and Mayan civilization. Yeah, the fact that uh, Quetzalcoatl is like clear across the Atlantic Ocean and you know, you wouldn't think there would be a great avenue of communication between those two areas does uh, strongly suggest some ancient connection where there was more uh confluence between, you know, the peoples. Yeah, let me say something else about that. I mean, I I'll go so far as to say I think Quetzalcoatl is Prometheus. I think Enki is Prometheus. Ahura Mazda is Prometheus. Prometheus is an archetype. Uh, it's an archetype capable of generating an egregore, which is something we can go into uh, later in our conversation. Um, but Prometheus is an archetype which is capable of generating, you know, uh, perhaps many different egregores, different iterations of itself a- a- at various times and places. And I think that, uh, you know, Assuming we're not living inside of a computer simulation and the cosmos that we see out there is, is actually there for us to explore, which, which may actually be an unjustified assumption, but we can talk <laughs> about that separately. In any case, if the cosmos is actually out there and there are other populated planets, I would suspect that you would find uh, an uh, analog to the Prometheus figure in any humanoid civilization that, you know, this, this, uh, archetype would be universal to beings who are similar to us, to beings who have the characteristics that, uh, that Martin Heidegger described as the, uh, the, um, you know, the existential structures of Dasein. Um, and so, yeah, I, this is one of the reasons why I've chosen Prometheus as uh, a symbol that we can look to, uh, to reorganize human society uh, at this crucial moment when we're approaching the technological singularity, partly I, I've chosen it because of its unique universality. And I see Prometheus reflected in uh, all of these other figures of various cultures from the Mayan Quetzalcoatl to, you know, the Mesopotamian Enki and the Iranian uh, Ahura Mazda. Very cool. And we should definitely include Hermes in there. But before we get into egregores, which I think is very important to your work and understanding this arc of history and, well, para-history, and as you're talking about other civilizations and dimensions, uh, we both like the work of Adrian Mayer. And in the myth of Prometheus, his liver is eaten out and people make the mistake of thinking it's eaten out by an eagle when it's actually a robot. And, of course, later on, we have the myth of Pandora, who's also a robot who wants to bring destruction upon humanity and dupes Prometheus's, well, not very smart brother. How does this myth play into your work, or what do you think of these these energies moving in the myths? Well, you know, the reason it's the liver is because the Greeks used the liver for... um Fortune telling the liver, the, the black blackness of the liver was used in a way comparable to crystal ball gazing for, um, you know, basically, uh, 
prognostication and, and, you know, seeing the future. And so Zeus wants to know what Prometheus knows. And this is a very powerful symbol because it means that Zeus is not omniscient. It's an admission that Zeus is not omniscient because he's, you know, as it were, picking Prometheus's brain, you know, through his liver uh, to find out what he knows. And in particular, in the in Prometheus Bound, Aeschylus's tragedy, uh, it's indicated that the secret Prometheus is harboring is uh, the secret of who is going to unseat Zeus. Uh, and um, there's this whole story about how it's actually the soul who winds up being born as Achilles. And uh, there was a possibility that Achilles would have been born as the son of Zeus, that Zeus was going to sleep with a, a, you know, among the many, you know, women that Zeus constantly is engaged in raping, uh, the serial rapist was going to uh, basically uh, sire Achilles with some uh, mortal woman. And that it had, had Achilles been born as the son of Zeus, he would have risen up against his father and unseated him. Um, and this would have represented the overthrow of the Olympians, the overthrow of the Olympian gods, which is an objective that Prometheus has uh, on behalf of humanity. And so when Zeus ultimately does find this out, he makes sure, you know, not to to sire uh, Achilles and Achilles winds up being born as a human. Um, but then it's interesting to look at the the uh, the. The qualities of Achilles, you know, his personality profile uh, as it's presented to us in the Iliad. And I think we can get a, a good idea of why it would have been that type of person uh, who would have, had he been born as a as a hero, as a hybrid, um, could have, in fact, led a rebellion against Zeus. The opening words are, you know, of the Iliad are rage Achilles. And you see Achilles raging against an unjust social order where Agamemnon, you know, has this like arbitrary tyrannical authority as a king over the Greeks. It's one of the first images that we have of the traditional social order being challenged and of the question of of justice being uh, posed in ideal terms that are later explored much more philosophically by Plato and the Republic. Why don't we discuss a little bit about egregores and how it plays into your work and how Prometheus is also... uh an egregore spreads an egregore and how an egregore is more than just your, your tulpa as some have said. Yeah. So egregore is a Greek term, which actually was the name for the fallen, uh, for the, uh, for the fallen angels. Um, when they translated the Bible into Greek, they uh, translated Nephilim as egregores. And so the, the, original usage of the term egregore was as a reference to these watchers. Um, and uh, that's interesting because, as I mentioned earlier, you know, they brought science and technology to humanity. Uh, they they uh, were infamous for having uh, taught these women who they slept with and who they who they sired children with. They, they taught these women the various arts and sciences. And this is one of the reasons why you know they're imprisoned uh, in the in the underworld by uh, the Elohim, by by the Archontic gods. So that's the origin of the word egregore. But then later it it developed a different connotation in the history of occultism, 
and it became a term that refers to uh, a thought form that is generated usually by a group of people. And so in this sense, it's similar to the Tibetan idea of a tulpa. In other words, a spectral entity that is projected uh, either unconsciously or deliberately by a by an occult practitioner, a, a, a conjured entity um, that is uh, that is envisioned um, in a coherent enough manner uh, by a group of people and invested with a, a backstory and a personality to the point where it develops a relative autonomy and it may even get out from under the control of the group of people who brought it into being. And, uh, you know, an interesting example of this uh, is uh, an entity that was generated by the Toronto Society of Psychical Research, I believe in the 1970s. They conjured this entity, Philip. Um, and it's a, it's a funny situation where, you know, these, these uh, psychical researchers decided that they were going to try to find out whether the beings that are, uh, that are communicated with by mediums in seances are actually uh, spirits of the departed and deceased, or whether it may be that, you know, the, these, um, these entities that communicate in medium, mediumistic trances are, you know, egregores generated by the group participating in the seance. So they decided to uh, set up seances where they would, they would communicate with a person who never existed. And they, they spent months envisioning this character, Philip, and giving them, giving him this backstory, very elaborate, romantic, uh, a story about, uh, you know, uh, the tragedies he suffered in, I think it was the 1700s or so when, you know, his, his, uh, sweetheart was accused of being a, a, a witch. And, uh, you know, it, it's a tragic love story and, they developed facets of his personality to the point where this Philip character started communicating with them through raps in the table. And they made recordings of all of this. Uh, and, you know, even the, the audio signature of the raps has been carefully analyzed. And uh, it's not the kind of audio signature you find, you know, with normal knocks on the table. In any case, they produced some compelling empirical evidence uh, for their having been able to conjure this entity. And so that's one good uh, example of an egregore. But the the uh, the question that I go into in in uh, it's actually the last chapter of my book Prometheism is um, the relationship between egregores and archetypes, because uh, not all archetypes are capable of generating an egregore. When you read Jung on archetypes and you know archetypes in the collective unconscious, he uh, he he basically has has a bunch of different explanations for what an archetype is and they don't all sit very well with one another there are places where jung uh describes archetypes as if they're platonic forms where they they have a kind of they have almost a, a mathematical degree of abstraction uh so you know you could have the archetype of a triangle um you could also have an archetype that has a a psychological significance to a whole society, but is still very abstract, like the archetype of the great mother. And I would say that archetypes like, you know, the perfect triangle, the ideal triangle, or, you know, the archetype of a circle on the one hand, or the archetype of the, the great mother, 
uh, are too general to generate an egregore or be the basis for, for the formation of an egregore. But then there are other archetypes that are very pr- particular in their characteristics. Uh, they're, they're much more, they're more well articulated and they have a, a more complex structure, uh, and are, uh, more given to taking anthropomorphic form. And, uh, Prometheus is definitely one of those archetypes. Of course, there are many others, like the archetype of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, Neptune or, you know, well, yeah, any yeah. of the Athens, Athena and Athens, Athena, Wotan in you know, Germany. So yeah, yeah. So Prometheus is an egregore based on an archetype. And I make this uh, argument. Well, really, I mean, I, it's, an, it's a further development of the argument I made in Prometheus and Atlas that the egregore of Prometheus is already loose in the world in a kind of Frankensteinian form. Um, the egregore of Prometheus is the spectral force of technological science, the way in which, especially in the modern epoch, as technological development has, has exponentially been accelerating since the Renaissance, uh, technology seems to have a certain autonomy. It seems to be organizing itself and reorganizing our lives in a way that we're not in control of. Heidegger analyzes this very well in his, uh, uh, in his essays on the question concerning technology, he calls it inframing. Um, the the uh, inframing or the, the gestell, the setting up of uh, global, a global technological network that is, that is almost akin to a movie production where there's no identifiable director and we're all sort of inside the stage setting and we're being given, you know, orders like actors on a scene but it's not clear who the director is here. And he also uh, call, calls this the age of the world picture. In other words, the age when the whole world becomes like a motion picture uh, without any identifiable director. And we're set up. Gestell, the German term he uses, means set up. And it's the setup like the rig, like the, you know, the tinker toy setup. But it's also the setup in the sense of being framed, like being framed for a murder. In other words, you know, some very horrible things could wind up happening on account of technological advancement, like, for example, a global thermonuclear war, without our even really being responsible for it. You know, so that we will wind up, this this egregore, this spectral force of technological science will wind up setting us up as murderers, uh, potentially on a, on a global scale. And this is, of course, a scenario that you see in the Terminator films with Skynet, the artificial intelligence that sets humanity up for a global thermonuclear holocaust. So what I'm arguing in Prometheism, going back to the thesis of Prometheus and Atlas, is that we need to develop a more conscious relationship with this Promethean archetype that is already controlling us from out of the collective unconscious, that we need to make this the unconscious power, the spectral force of this archetype conscious, so that we can appropriate it in appropriate it in empowering ways, rather than uh, having it run loose as a kind of Frankenstein's monster uh, that imperils human existence. Well, we are towards the end of the interview. For the audience, I will of course have show notes on Jason's new book, Prometheism, links to the Prometheus Manifesto, 
But, uh, Jason, if people want to find you, you're still at the same web address, still in the same uh, haunts of the Internet? Yeah, so I still have jasonrezzergiorgiani.com, but now there's also prometheism.com. Uh, and Prometheism uh, has links to, you know, the, the YouTube channel for Prometheism and uh, the Facebook page and Twitter and so on and so forth. Awesome. Well, audience, please support Jason because uh, I would have to agree that we need Prometheus more than ever. Any of these trickster gods, uh, this is it. This is the, uh, if you think 2020 was stressful, wait till 2021 and we got to be ready. As Michael Moorcock said, we got to be veterans of a thousand psychic wars. But uh, that's one reason we do this show, to bring that enlightenment, that fire from the gods, and well, steal that fire from the gods. So, But Vance, uh, first of all, thanks for uh, joining us on this show. Okay, it's been uh, an honor and a privilege to participate in the field test for the New World Order. <laughs> so, uh, Jason, uh, appreciate your work there. That's a lot, a lot of good stuff, a lot of cogent thought. Thank you, Vance. Sometime uh, uh be nice to have a conversation off the record. Yeah, that'd be, I'm very interested in this, as Miguel knows. Definitely delves into this stuff uh, from all angles. But Jason, well, as always, really appreciate you coming on the show. It is always an honor and a privilege, and we feel you always make the world a better place with your ideas. Thank you, Miguel. They're incendiary ideas, but I think at this point they're necessary. I agree. As uh, I forget who said it, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the roof is on fire and we're all under the same house. He also <laughs> said the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Amen. I love that quote too. Well, Jason, as always, thanks for coming on the show and taking your time. Thank you, Miguel. It's been a pleasure as always. And there you have it, my beloved Jew seekers. The first part of our interview with Jason Reza Giorgiani on his new book, Prometheism. They say you want to start a revolution, but you need to be the revolution. In our second part, Jason will discuss Jung and his views on UFOs, which will bring more clarity on egregores and archetypes. Jason will explain why such ideas as universal love will never work in any time, and how you can start an authentic revolution. We'll talk about Alan Moore's Promethea, a lot of insights in that work. As always, Jason will reward us with his ideas on Gnosticism. And then we'll get into telepathy, eugenics, genetics, and the spectral. Of course, Jason will grant us the dope on becoming a bona fide Prometheus that can bring down Olympus. Yeah, baby. So please become an AB Prime member of Patreon at Patreon for the full stealing of fire. And plenty of more rewards and a direct path to joining a Gnostic community that is becoming the revolution. Instead of me, Maimon, splaining all the benefits, please go to the God Above God Dead Cam or just message my ass. Let's keep growing this Red Bill Cafeteria. 2020 has been Aeon Byte's best year, 
and that's largely because many are realizing that these are Gnostic times and only Gnosis will set us free. You are the final authority, have always been. Now you must write your own gospel and live your own myth and leash your inner Prometheus. Anything else would be sane, and sane don't cut it anymore. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye as always. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.